0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, that is from the Charlie Brown Christmas, and many of you have probably seen it before. There's a reason that's the clip today, because we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and now we are into Luke chapter 2. We're into that particular passage. One of the really neat things about that scene, which anyone here who is into Charlie Brown already knows this, Linus, the little boy who's holding the blanket, who's reciting Luke chapter two there, he drops the blanket. And that's important because he never drops his blanket. He always has his safety blanket with him. He drops it as he says the words, fear not. It's a really cool thing. Well, that is the the scripture we are into today, and that is the most read passage of scripture in the entire Bible because it comes up every single Christmas season. Every single Christmas season, you'll hear that passage over and over again. And if you've been a Christian in the church, you've probably heard it so many times you've memorized it without even trying to memorize it. It's the most commonly read passage of scripture. That's the passage that we are into today. The interesting thing about today is we're not going to approach it from a Christmas spirit kind of theme. We're not in the middle of the Christmas season, we're near the end of the month of May. And so we're gonna dig into it, we're gonna dive into it, and we're gonna look at some really deep things that are happening in this passage, some really deep things that aren't exactly what we would expect if we were approaching this from a a reader's perspective, having not heard the rest of the story. They aren't exactly what we expect, but they reveal something to us about God, something very important about God, something that we hardly ever talk about when it comes to the character of God. And then who we are in relationship to God makes a lot of sense in light of that. Well, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and start turning there, it's gonna be in Luke chapter two. And as you turn there, I'd like to share with you an illustration that will help explain the point that we're gonna get to. About three and a half months ago, my wife and I, we had our fourth baby, Clara. And she's, yes, she is healthy, she's doing well, She's, she's a wonderful addition to our family. She really completes our family, and we couldn't be more happy that she is in our life. Now, we had her at a birth center. A birth center is very similar to a hospital room, if you've ever been in a hospital room, a maternity ward, that sort of thing. We had her in a, in a birth center, and all the normal stuff is in a birth center, everything that you would expect. There's a bed, there's this diaper changing table, there's a birthing ball, there's this tall thing that you can hook IVs up to. I don't know what those are called. You know, there's a lot of things that are in the room. It's all the normal stuff that you would expect in the birth center. There's nothing out of the ordinary. If I told you after the baby was born I was tired and I wanted to sit down somewhere, and so I sat down on the lawnmower, you would go, wait, what? You sat on a, why, what, where were you again? What was going on? Why was there a lawnmower in the birth center? That would stand out to you as a very strange thing. There are a bunch of details in the story that we're gonna look at today that should stand out to us in the same way that we should go, wait, what, why? Why is that there? Well, let's go ahead and take a look. It's from Luke chapter two. Luke is recording the history of actual events here. And he says in Luke chapter two, verse one, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. Now we're not gonna spend too much time on these first three verses. The important thing to note is that Luke is setting, he's giving the setting of when these events take place. They're real events, it's nonfiction. this is actual history, and it took place in a specific year that his audience would've understood. The first registration under Caesar Augustus during the, the governorship of Quirinius, governor of Syria. His audience would've heard that and be like, oh yeah, I, I know what year that is. Unfortunately, to, it, to us today, about 2,000 years removed, we don't know exactly what year that is, and there's a lot of debate between theologians and scholars and all that, and that's, that's not going to be the point of today, to try and figure out, was it 4 AD or 6 BC or when exactly, what year Jesus was born. What is important is that Luke is making the details clear to his audience This is real history. These events really took place. And within historical narrative, because that's what this is, there are characters. And so now he's going to introduce the characters of this historical narrative. In verse 4, it says, "...and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David." We already know about Mary and Joseph from chapter one. All right, those characters have already been told to us. We know that Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah. The angel Gabriel has told her that. And so here they are, they come on the scene, they have to go to Bethlehem, the city of David, because Joseph is of the line of David. And there are a lot of things that we don't know about the events around them getting to Bethlehem, about how long were they in Bethlehem before the baby came. It doesn't actually tell us that they showed up the night that Mary was gonna have her baby and the inn was full. We we don't know that detail. It just says the time came for her to give birth. So they're in Bethlehem, they're there for a little while, and then the most important thing in this entire passage happens, but it's not the climax of the narrative, it's interesting. The most important thing is that the baby is born. The baby was born, the firstborn son was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's a very normal thing to put a baby in, even in ancient biblical times, that's exactly what they would wrap a baby in. We do that today because that's, that's the best way to clothe a newborn baby. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, and even back in ancient times to today, that's, that's what we do. And so he's wearing normal clothes, but then he is in a not normal location. He's lying on top of something not normal. He is in a manger. A manger is essentially a trough, something that was used to feed animals. Uh, we don't know exactly what it would have been made out of, but best guesses out there among scholars who study this is that it would have actually been stone carved out, and so it would have had a, a trench, essentially, that you could have then placed food into so the animals could dip their heads into it and eat. Jesus, who we don't know his name yet, God the Son, has been placed in this of all things for him to have as his first piece of furniture, God the Son is put in a manger. That's not what we would expect for many reasons, because normally you just don't put a baby in that, but also he's God the Son. And the narrator knows that, that the, the reader, the audience who is seeing this, is gonna question why a manger. He explains why a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. So from that alone, we can figure out, okay, they must have had to go somewhere else where animals stay, like a barn or a stable, and where there would happen to be a manger, which would then serve as the most convenient thing to lay the newborn baby into. This should stand out to us. There's something interesting about this, that God the Son comes into the world in a stable, and he's laid in a manger, but the story isn't over yet. It keeps going in verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now, in the same way that the manger should stand out to us, so should the shepherds. An angel is showing up to see these shepherds. And he tells the shepherds, and he said to them, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We don't have to know what's coming next. We can already guess it. The angel is going to tell them about the birth of this baby. Why shepherds? Why would an angel come and visit shepherds, people who would have been very low in society, they wouldn't have been outcasts of society, but they would have been very, very low in biblical Hebrew society. Why not kings? Why not rulers? Why not the local government, Sanhedrin? You know, why not people of rank and position? It's the group of shepherds who the angel is coming to to deliver this message. We should be asking, why? Well, let's find out what the good news is. It is what we would have guessed. In verse 11, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Well, the good news is this baby has been born in Bethlehem or the city of David, as the angel says. This baby happens to be Christ the Lord. He's the savior of the world. He's the one that the whole Old Testament was prophesying about. He's finally here. And you guys, you shepherds, are the ones who are gonna get to go and see him. This will be a sign to you. This is how you'll know you have found the right baby. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. There are three details there. Baby, swaddling clothes, manger. Now, a baby in swaddling clothes is exactly what you would expect to find a baby. So there's something about the baby swaddling clothes and manger that you need all three of those, specifically the manger, to distinguish this baby from any other baby that happens to have been born in Bethlehem that week. Because if all they had to go off of was, you'll find a baby wearing swaddling clothes, if there were any other babies, there's no way they would tell the difference. But because it says lying in a manger That is the sign. That is the thing that should stand out as this is different. This is unusual. You you won't find any other babies, perhaps in the entire country, lying in a manger. But you'll find this one lying in a manger. That is the sign. And we should stop and we should think about that. The God of the universe in all his power, in all his glory, deserving of all glory When God the Son comes into the world, the sign that reveals that he is God the Son is a manger. It's not some big, shiny, powerful angel who goes and stands on top of the manger scene. Unlike just about every depiction of manger scenes that you've ever seen where there's an angel on top, that's not actually part of the story, unfortunately. That would have been a really cool sign. That would have been a fitting sign, he's God. An angel should stand on top of the stable and say, look, this is the Messiah, this is the one. But no, instead, it's, it's this inanimate object that's used to feed animals. That is the sign that this is the Messiah. Well, the story's not over yet. There's a lot more coming. In fact, we're about to see the climax in verse 13 and 14. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Suddenly there's this multitude of angels singing praises to God the Father. And they're singing them to a certain audience. And it's interesting who the audience is. We should be looking at that and asking the question, why? Why is that the audience? and why is someone else not the audience? Why are the shepherds getting to see this, and why is God the Son somewhere else, not witnessing this? Mary and Joseph are somewhere else, have no idea that this is going on, however far away it is. It's not what we would expect, When God the Son comes into the world, yes, we would expect angels to sing triumphantly that he has arrived, but we'd expect them to do it in his presence, and they do it for a group of shepherds. This is a fascinating, fascinating story that should make us scratch our heads quite a bit, wondering why is it unfolding the way it is. Well, it continues on in verse 15, and it says, when the angels went away from them into heaven. That's the last stop for the angels, the one and only stop. They came, they had their message for the shepherds, they sang praises to God in the presence of the shepherds, and then they left. They do not then go on and visit all the kings in the region or anything like that. It was just for the shepherds. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Every time the baby gets mentioned, notice what gets mentioned with him, the manger They find the baby lying in the manger. They do exactly what you would expect them to do. The angels told them, you know, the savior of the world is here. They go to find him. And they do find him. They find him exactly in the way the angel told them that they would find him. And so significant is that detail, that they find him in a manger, that we then get the next two verses. 17 says, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them when they saw it, that tiny little word. It's modifying something. It's modifying an inanimate object, not a baby. You don't have to be an expert in the English language to understand that. It's describing the manger when they saw the manger, that is when they then explain to everyone, we have found the Messiah, we found the Savior, this is the one that the angels told us about, this is Christ the Lord. And everyone else who's there, which we don't know who these other people are, we don't have any details about them other than the fact that they are the others who are there, they're all in wonder at these revelations that are being presented by the shepherds. You could say they're, they're shocked, they're amazed. I've never heard anything like this. Angels told you that you would find a baby in a manger. Well, that that is strange, but yeah, there he is. And he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. They're all in awe and wonder. This is all brand new news to all of these people that we're, we're seeing interact in this scene, except for two individuals and one of them who's, we're actually gonna get a little insight into what's going on with, and that's Mary in verse 19. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, if you're like me, every time you read this story, you can't help but stop on that verse and wonder like, what, what exactly does that mean? I'll tell you what I think it means. As a parent, I think I have a bit more understanding of this verse than I did before I was a parent. You know, uh, as parents, when someone comes up to you and they tell you or they've told you something about your kid that you know to be true, something good. Like your kid is so smart, your kid is so strong or athletic or so kind, so sweet, so loving. You know, they tell you something like that about your kid or maybe you've heard something like that. And you as a parent, you know, you know they're right. You're like, yeah, I know that. Most people haven't noticed, but I know that. You don't respond with, I already know that. Why are you telling me? You respond with, well, thanks. Yeah, I, I, that's true, they are like that and you treasure that, and you ponder at, and you, all you want to do is go home and share that with someone else. I heard this about our son, our daughter. Mary uniquely is one of very few people who knows that the baby she just gave birth to, however many hours ago, is Christ the Lord. She knows that about him. She was told that about him before he was even conceived by the angel Gabriel. She knows that and how good it must feel for a group of shepherds to come in the room regardless of their position or status in society for them to come in the room and say, that's Christ the Lord, we know because he's lying in that manger. She treasures that, she ponders it. Well, you would think that this scene would end Focusing perhaps on Mary or maybe Joseph, you know, it'd be neat to hear what's going on in his mind in this moment. Or even just telling us some things about the baby. Have you noticed we we don't have his name yet? We're not gonna know his name until verse 21, eight days later when he's circumcised and named Jesus. We don't know how much he weighs. We don't know how long he is, how many inches long. We don't know his hair color, his eye color. We don't know if mommy and baby are healthy. All the things in modern society that we expect to hear about a baby, right? We don't know much at all about him, other than the fact that he is wearing normal baby clothes and lying in a not normal place for a baby to lie. We know a lot about what he's gonna be. We know that he's the savior coming to the world and and there's a lot more to be said about him. And so we should be desiring to hear more about him. But so far, we really know very little about him. We know more about the shepherds. We've seen more of the shepherds. The shepherds have spoken a lot more than the baby has in this scene, which stands to reason. And the scene ends, drawing our attention back to the shepherds. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The final thing that happened that day that is recorded in the Bible is the shepherds going back to where they came from, glorifying and praising God for everything that has been shown to them, just as it had been told them. The fact that they've come in contact with the Messiah inspires them to go now and praise and glorify God. This is the good news for all the people. They're the only ones in the story who get told that by the angel. And now they're gonna go out and deliver that. So as we look at this story, we should be asking the question, why? Why is it this way? Why does God the Son come into the world in a manger, in a stable? Why is the audience that gets to come and and be the, the, the group of people who are there for his birth, why is it shepherds? Why do angels not sing to him? Why? Why are all these things happening? And I'll tell you the reason because this is the first humiliation of Christ. There are three humiliations of Christ in Christian conversation. I'm not coming up with this. This is something that that Christians talk about. There are three humiliations of Christ and this is the first one, that he, God the Son, perfect, all-powerful, sovereign, would come into the world and become his creation. He would take on human flesh, become person, become a human person, that is. Still fully God, mind you, but limited, limited even as a baby. And so when we see details like a manger or shepherds being the audience, those are actually very pale reflections of the measure of humility that this God must have in order to come into the world and become part of his creation. They highlight that for us the reality that there is an attribute to our God that we don't talk about very often called humbleness. Well, that's the first humiliation of Christ. The second humiliation of Christ, you can probably guess if you haven't heard of this before, and that's his death on the cross. The fact that God the Son would die at the hands of his creation When he has the power to prevent it, when he has the power to do whatever he wants with his creation, he would die at the hands of his creation, he would put himself in the position to die at the hands of his creation. And yet that doesn't go all of a sudden outside of the character of God, it's a pattern that's already been set when he first came into the world as a helpless baby. And then he allows himself to be helpless in the hands of his creation and put to death on the cross. If you look at any of the four gospel accounts of Jesus Christ on the cross, of those scenes, you will notice that they spend, all four narrators spend more time focusing on how he is humiliated than on how he is put through pain. It's an interesting thing. And so those are the first two humiliations of Christ, the birth and then the death. So what would be the third humiliation of Christ? If you haven't heard of this, you might wonder. Well, after Christ was After he was crucified, he was buried. And after that, he rose from the grave. He then ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, he left the earth in a physical sense. And he left it to then be represented by his disciples, by the church, by us even today. Over the last 2,000 years, God the Son, Jesus Christ, has been represented by imperfect people, A perfect God has been represented by imperfect people and we've done so imperfectly. Now, this is not an attack on the church in any way. Thank God that he has the humility to be represented imperfectly by imperfect people. Otherwise, none of us would be a part of the body of Christ. It's an amazing attribute of God. It's an amazing part of the character of God. And if it weren't there, then none of us would be a part of the body of Christ. It's an amazing thing that we can miss so easily when we focus on you know, the fact that he's come into the world to save the world and the goodness of that. But there's so much more going on in this story. There's so much more going on throughout all the pages of scripture revealing to us about God. And that's why the shepherds in the story get so much time, they get so much attention how well could we relate to mother of Jesus, the mother of God, Mary? How well could we relate to the angels? How well could we relate to Joseph? Probably not, but who can we relate to in this story? The shepherds who were brought into contact with God the Son, who actually experience him firsthand, who then, inspired by experiencing him, go and glorify him and praise him and bear witness to the news which is for all the people. The good news. Imperfect shepherds, lowly shepherds. Sounds a lot like us today. And we get to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ even today. Well, 2,000 years ago, roughly, before Christ would go to the cross, before he would be betrayed, with his disciples in the upper room, observing the Passover feast, Jesus Christ took his disciples aside and he taught them to observe the Lord's Supper every time they gather together. And as Christians, we do that today and we remember just as Christ said of the bread, as he broke it, this is my body given for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And as he said of the cup filled with wine, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take this in remembrance of me. Although we might be imperfect representatives of Jesus Christ, we are still of his body. And thank God that we get to represent him even still.